if you just give up, that's one thing. But there's also a support system at MATE where if you fail, people will cheer you on, maybe guide you to the next year and the next round. And so there's this whole culture of learning and often learning through failure, which, which is just, I find just wonderful. Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. This is Annalise Corbin, Chief Goddess of the Past Foundation and your host. We hear frequently that the global education system is broken. In fact, we spend billions of dollars trying to fix something that's actually not broken at all, but rather irrelevant. It's obsolete. A hundred years ago, it functioned fine. So let's talk about how we reimagine, rethink, and redesign our educational system. This is Annalise Corbin, your host of Learning Unboxed, and I want to welcome us all back. We are once again um, on the road for this episode. We are in Boston, Massachusetts, and I'm very excited as always to be able to share some of the fabulous case studies and stories of amazing things that are happening in the world of teaching, learning, and the future of work um, from around the country and around the world. And there is a lot of that happening in Boston. And so my guest uh, this afternoon is one of my all-time heroes. Um, With us is Marty Klein, who is at this point president of uh, Martin Klein Consulting, but he has a backstory that is one of legend in the world of deep water sciences generally in maritime archaeology and history in particular and in remote sensing specifically. So Marty, welcome. Well, thank you, Annalise. It's great to be with you. So um, just a little bit of context. Most of my listeners know that my backstory is um, a research scientist, as a maritime archaeologist and anthropologist, uh, which is how I came to know Marty over the years and Marty's work. In my former life and hat prior to um, launching the PAST Foundation, um, my work was in training the next generation of maritime archaeologists. And as part of that work, um, we couldn't get very far in our teaching and learning without having to spend a ton of time understanding the work of Marty Klein. And uh, just to sort of set um, some more uh, context pieces for our listeners, Marty did a lot of his work early on through his academic sort of journey at MIT, um, and that is the MIT we're talking about here, um, and and his work um, at the highest level of science and engineering um, tied to remote sensing. And the reason this story is so important for learning Unboxed, um, and in particular for, for communities and teachers and learners looking to iterate, is because you will, you will find that part of Marty's journey was taking his scientific work and providing an opportunity for public outreach and engagement. In other words, ways to take the real-world science and engineering he's doing and make it relevant to young people. And that's really the story that we're talking about today. So as as I digress a little bit here, one of the things that I'm sure that Marty is certainly proud of, it's certainly one that that, um, the rest of us in the profession are proud of, was the fact that the National Academy of Engineering provided you with a citation um, for the development of underwater imaging systems that have contributed to ocean exploration. 
Um, and that's a pretty rare thing as a research scientist to have received. Yes? Yes. <laughs> So Marty, for those who don't know, I don't want to get into high-level details of the work that you've done, but one of my favorite stories of all time about you is as, as a graduate student, I believe it was, at MIT, walking into the office of a man by the name of Doc Edgerton. So for folks who don't know, who aren't from this field, uh, Doc Edgerton is one of, the, one of the leading folks in a lot of early, early work around sensing or remote sensing uh, coming out of MIT. So, so tell us about how you got involved in remote sensing, Marty. Well, it's, it all happened in a, in a way by accident. Uh, my start in the field really started when I was a kid. People uh, joke about that I was born with a pocket knife. I always liked to build things and take them apart. And so as a kid, I just liked to tinker and I would uh, take every radio in the house and turn it into an intercom. And I would fix people's phonographs and I would fix their TVs. And it was the early days of, of uh, electronics. Uh, and I became fascinated with a device called a transistor. It had just been developed in the 1950s by uh, three guys, Bardeen, Bardeen, Bertok, I forget their exact names. But for some reason, I took a fascination with these things. And they were, they were new. And... They were expensive, and but I I just read everything I could about them, and you could I could take my whole allowance and buy one for six dollars, <laughs> and, and so I started building things. I started building little radios. I started building uh, intercoms, various electronic gadgets, and I also like to write. I come from my father was a, a somewhat of a writer. And I, I like to write. So as a kid, I wrote articles about what I was doing. And one of my uh, first articles was about building a sophisticated transistor radio. It was called the Super 8. And uh, uh, you can't see me on TV here, but I'm a little guy. And I went into New York City <laughs> and I met the publisher, the editor of a magazine called Radio Electronics. I was maybe 16. And and I, I went into this guy and I said, I've written this article. And he looks down on me and says, Sonny, did your father write that? And I, I got very indignant. I said, <laughs> no, I wrote it. So I had some articles in these magazines. And so I, I like to build things. And so I managed to get, uh, it's kind of a story. My, my cousin had, had gone to MIT before. My, my cousin was like my big brother. Mm -hmm. And he had gone gotten in MIT. So I wanted to go to MIT. And it was just a given that I was going to go into electrical engineering, which I did. He went into naval architecture, uh, but I went to engineering. And as a senior at MIT, we had to do a thesis. And I didn't know what, they didn't tell you, uh, you know, what to do. So I, I roamed around the halls of the school and I I talked to people, I talked to professors, I looked at magazines, and I was kind of lost. I, I did find a project um, that was very mathematical. Oddly enough, it was about image processing, but this is long before the days of computers and, and sophisticated electronics and microprocessors. But that's, so that's what I was going to do, and I didn't really want to do it. It was a bunch of just equations, and I... Uh, math was not my strong 
my my strong suit was building things. That's what I enjoyed, making them work. So I was kind of lost. And I at MIT, I as you said, I went into there was a famous professor named Harold Edgerton. Everyone called him Doc Edgerton. Yeah. And he was quite famous. He uh he developed the strobe light. He's very famous for he didn't invent it, but he perfected the strobe light. And so pictures that you see of uh, milk drops and bullets going through cards and and all kind of iconic things. He he made those pictures. He worked on strobes way back in the 1930s, at first for industrial purposes, but then then for uh, he he became one of the world's great photographers. And so I asked him, uh, Doc, do you might have anything interesting to work on? And my life that day changed and it still changed it changed radically and uh to this day uh i, I became a student of edgerton's a protege of edgerton's and it was an amazing opportunity he was one of the, literally one of the world's great scientists mm-hmm. he had all he knew everyone in the world it turns out Edgerton had been introduced to Jacques Cousteau, the famous oceanographer, by the National Geographic magazine. Cousteau wanted to take pictures in the deepest part of the ocean. And Geographic put Doc and, and Cousteau together, and Doc made for Cousteau an underwater camera and strobe light. And they took, in fact, the first pictures in the deepest ocean. It was very historic mm-hmm. stuff. Classic and iconic, and we still benefit from it today. Very much. Yes. Very much. And um, so, Doc, it turns out to position this camera device, they had used a a pinger. uh, It was a converted Navy echo sounder, and uh, it made a precision ping, and they uh, were able to... Uh, there was no wire in this connection. It was just a rope going to the camera. There was no electrical wire. So they made a precise pinger, and they could look at the pings. They would go down to the seafloor, and they would also go direct to a hydrophone or an underwater microphone on the ship. And using this apparatus, they because the, the camera had it was down miles under the ocean, but it had to be say ten feet above the seabed, and so they figured out how to do that. Well, Doc noticed that his pinger. He was not only seeing traces, he was looking at some of the sub-bottom, the, the sediments below the surface. And he was an inquisitive scientist. Uh, he started working on a gadget he called a mud penetrator to penetrate the sediments of the, we're here in Boston, the Charles River and Boston Harbor. And by accident, I walked into this thing and he said, uh, he was very amazing uh, man. He was very uh, warm, very, uh, he was one of the world's great teachers. And he took me under his wing and he said, oh, Marty, I'm working on this, this thing. Maybe you can help me with it. And so I began working at his lab and working on this thesis. And um, a number of things happened. For one, I met all kinds of people, including Cousteau, including Ed Land, the head guy who started Polaroid, including many famous scientists, including professors. And as I say, he he knew the president. He knew everyone in, in the world. And I have some awards, but he has he has bigger awards. <laughs> so uh 
So I started working. It turns out because I the the equipment back then worked with vacuum tubes, or as they say in England, valves, these glass things, very nowadays, very primitive. And the new technology was transistors. And sort of by chance, I knew, because as a hobbyist, I had worked with transistors. So I started working on, on Doc's instruments. And a number of things happened. Uh, one is he taught me photography. He, he was an amazing photographer. He had a, a dark room in his lab. And he taught us about, oh, a lot of things about... Uh, photographic resolution, about dynamic range, a, a lot of things that to this day are very important in the field of photography, sonar. And he also had, uh, he had a rifle in the lab and we, we students could, you could shoot bullets through you. <laughs> we, he loved to do experiments. He loved students and he loved to get you excited and go out in the field and do something. He called them experiences. And, mm-hmm. and so one of the things he did is give me a key to his laboratory, which became my most precious possession. Back as a student, I was a night bird. I would work in the middle of the night. I would work odd hours. So I would go into the lab and became, you become sort of a caretaker of the lab. And uh, we do our experiments. Well, I the traces he was getting on this pinger, on this mud penetrator, weren't very good. They were fuzzy, and I didn't like it. I tend to be, uh, you'll hear more of this about me, but I tend to, uh, as a person, to be not satisfied intentionally. I like to make things better. I like to come into any situation and and. Uh, and improve it. So the, I didn't like these fuzzy traces. So I went in, I'd actually literally work in the middle of the night and I'd tweak around, I'd add some capacitors or I'd chase some noise or the, the thing had oscillation and noise and, and grounding problems. So I just fiddle and fiddle. I had my soldering iron and I'd, I'd try it and I'd try this and I'd try that. And one day, one night in the middle of the night, the traces we were actually looking at the wall. We had the sonar on a table, just looking at, at the wall. And we would just take a sheet of plywood and walk back and forth in front of this uh, transducer. Very and, high tech. Very high tech. And <laughs> you could see the echoes. And they had been for these fuzzy lines. It drove me nuts. And all, all of a sudden, I don't know what time or day, all of a sudden the lines were perfect. They were like pencils. They were just gorgeous. And so, of course, I was very excited. I took, in those days, these machines had paper recorders that threw out this uh, awful contraption, paper recorders. So I took this paper and just laid it on Doc's desk. And I wrote on it something like, Il Mash, it it works. Uh I didn't know much French, but it's something like that. And he came in in the morning and he was very excited. And we became friends and and colleagues. And uh, to this day, I think of myself, he's passed away a long time ago, but I still think I'm a student yeah. of myself as a student. I still have things I want to prove to him. Uh, there's things I want to accomplish, even though I'm, we joke about it. I'm supposed to be retired. <laughs> but uh, uh, So he had this incredible curiosity. He would wake me up literally at 
four in the morning on a Sunday morning and say, hey, Klein, get out of bed. Uh, we're going to go see if the Sumner Tunnel and, and Callahan Tunnel are still under Boston Harbor. And if Doc said, go, you got to went. So he had a little boat at the sailing pavilion at MIT, and we'd go out in the boat. And, and sure enough, the tunnels were there. They're still there. And uh, But he would do, just do these exciting things. And he would take me on trips sometimes. Uh, so he started using this device of his. At some point, it was looking downward. It was looking at sediment. But at some point in the lab, we had been using it looking horizontally. So in the, in the water, he started using it horizontally. And he made what became a crude side scan sonar. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole long history about that. Uh, he didn't invent side scan sonar. I didn't invent side scan sonar. He did, though, introduce it. He had a fascination with archaeology. And he wanted to show whatever he did, especially as if you met him, he used to come to this SHA convention yep. that we're at, and he would pass out postcards of bullets going through cards and uh, uh, milk drops. And he, would, and, and he just loved to make friends. He loved to show off what he was doing. And so he, with the finger, he, he got to meet Cousteau. He got to meet uh, Alicia Linder in Israel. He got to meet... Uh, a whole bunch of people, and he introduced this really nascent technology to the underwater world. Mm -hmm. And yet, it was at very much a different time. But he had this little oceanographic department, and he made these things. He made various devices. He made on once he made those cameras for Cousteau, Edgerton, uh, the, the company made underwater cameras and strobes, and he made other sound devices. He made things called boomers that made a big noise in the water and could penetrate more of the sediments. He made sparkers. Uh, they made a, a number of things for the ocean world. So I worked in his lab for about uh, well, maybe six months or so, and then he hired me to work in his company. And I worked right in Boston. In fact, there's sort of a, a funny story there. I I grew up in New York City, and I was a fan of the New York baseball giants, a fanatic fan. And one day they moved away. They moved to, uh, the Giants moved to San Francisco, and the Brooklyn Dodgers moved to Los Angeles. And and I just wouldn't watch baseball for years. <laughs> and I we literally, I worked in various places. The company later changed its name to EG&G from Edget and Germershausen and Greer. But we literally worked across from Fenway Park in Boston, and I never went to a game. Mm -hmm. And I swore I would never get hooked on baseball again. Well, I did. And that's a, that's a whole story. I became a Red Sox fan eventually. <laughs> so it's a separate story. But so I started my career. I was working with these uh, mud penetrators, underwater cameras, boomers. We were traveling. We did survey work. Uh, some fascinating survey work. We, uh, among other things, we went to the Mississippi River and looked at, they tried to hold the river together with these concrete mattresses called revetments. And so we did surveys on the Mississippi River. Uh, there's kind of a side story there. Uh, it was the first time in my life I had ever seen segregation. And I was appalled. It's a whole separate story, which I won't get into much, but it shook me to my core that people would treat 
other people like that. And there were many startling. I went and sat on the back of a bus in New Orleans and the driver came and grabbed me by the throat and took me to the front of the bus and said in foul words uh, that I didn't belong there. And, and anyway, another side story. So we worked on Mississippi River. We worked on the English Channel. Uh, on the English Channel Tunnel Project. We did a survey. I lived literally in, in Dover, England. And we surveyed between Calais and, and Dover, and we surveyed sub-bottom profiling with boomers and sparkers of the, uh, of the English Channel. And later, they, they finally, it was built. And, you know, there is a channel now. My mother used to say, Martin, you built that tunnel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's kind of a family joke. But as part of this field work we did, I'd work on boats of all kinds. And because I was an engineer, it was assumed that you could fix anything. So on the boat, I worked on the echo sounder. I worked on the radar. I worked on the, uh, the navigation equipment. We had some of the earliest electronic navigation equipment, a thing called a DECA HIFIX. And uh, so I learned a lot about many things going in the field. You learn about people. You learn about how to make do. You learn about how to uh, get along, how to get a job done, how to be responsible. If it's your, it's got to be done. You, you got to get it done. You can't turn to... You can't look on the internet. <laughs> you can't. And so I had a lot of challenges, and uh, I could I could go on with some stories. In in, uh, in this little town of Dover, uh, our equipment wasn't working, and I had to find a, an oscilloscope. And I found a, a little place called the the radio shop of Smy Rumsby, and Mister Smy loaned us his oscilloscope, and I was able to repair the equipment. <laughs> All of those experiences, right? Um, we, we say stories now, but the reality is that all of those experiences couched in, you know, your native curiosity as a young child, which unfortunately you had a family that fostered that um, in you. And then you, you take that and you pair it with a great teacher and mentor, right? Who also then recognized that same sense of curiosity and wonder in the world and provided just endless opportunity, clearly, for you to be able to, to grow in and turn your passion, your, your love of science and discovery and engineering, the tinkering and building of things, right? Into not just a viable career, but ultimately you spin off and just for the sake of our listeners, because I do want to dig into the, the outreach and the, the school piece um, here. Um, but ultimately, the backstory for our listeners is that Marty takes all of that. He spins and creates his own his own company eventually. And that that company, if you are in the fields of, of anything tied to side scan, sonar, if um, deep water sciences of any description, um, probably, you know, the, the use of sonar anywhere and not just even underwater, you know who Marty Klein is. Um, he is a legend in, in sonar technology sort of period. Um, and, 
And in addition to doing all of those pieces and creating this company that then had a very long life and history of innovation, like I said, everybody that I know um, who works in this field um, uses that equipment, trained on that equipment. And we've got our own stories about you know those, those uh, Klein uh, side scans um, and the way they change over time as well. But ultimately, you, you found a pretty intriguing way and you didn't do this on your own. And I know you're always cautious uh, about... You making folks think that, right? So I'm going to be really careful and, and, and honor that. But but you also recognize the value of the way you could take the, the work that was happening in the world and the deep water stuff and the na- natural curiosity that people have about what's under there. You know, it's, it's, it's just like, you know, the questions about what's up there um, in space, right? What's what's down there under, under the water, um, under the oceans? Because very few people uh, get the opportunity to go there themselves, right? So, but we have this amazing science and technology that coupled together allows us to be these great universal explorers. And so, Marty, you were involved in what today is a program called MATE, and we'll come back around to that. But it didn't start out specifically sort of that way and what the program is today um, that was really around taking um, the work of science in those very remote, hard-to-reach locations, in this case, in deep water science, and turning it into an opportunity or a competition um, where teams could compete to, to build and to discover and sort of launch from there as a way to get a whole new generation of budding deep water scientists and engineers to stick, essentially, right? So, I, I, and the reason I preface with this story is because a few years ago, there was a documentary film that came out called Underwater Dreams that was written and directed by Barry Mazio and narrated by Michael Pena, who many folks know, know that actor, um, which is an epic story of how the sons of undocumented Mexican immigrants learn how to build an underwater ROV um, based using Home Depot parts. Um, and, and then they were able to go on and defeat a team of MIT engineers at the very competition that MIT created. So tell us a little bit, Marty, um, about how about how all of that came to be. I, I'm most interested in the mechanisms by which your, you and your colleagues said, hey, we've got this amazing work that we do in the world and we could turn it into a thing to inspire others. Um, and initially it was an undergraduate or it was our graduate teams. It was not intended for high school kiddos. And now to preface this back, we've got elementary kids doing mate. And we're going to come back to that. And, and, and you may not consider that your legacy, but I wish that you would. Okay. Thank <laughs> because you. it is one of the most powerful things I see. And PAST is involved in MATE. We are one of the sites. We, we run one of the big regionals, the Buckeye Regional MATE, mate event. And uh, we're really, really proud of that. And it's part of your origin story. So talk to us a little bit about how that came to be, because I think that people who are contemplating, hey, should I get involved with MATE? Um, that's a piece of the story that's sort of near and dear. And I do encourage people to go see Underwater Dreams. It's streaming. You can get it. It's a very, really wonderful and inspiring story. How much of it's real and how much of it's Hollywood, I don't know, but I suspect you do. Well, it's it's pretty real. There are actually two films. One, uh, there is the... the um Spare parts that mm-hmm. Mary Mazio, uh, who's, uh, by the way, an amazing 
woman. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever met I've her. not had the, like the, the pleasure. I would love that. We're not going to have time, but she is incredible. Well, uh, some of it, because the internet helped me so much, and my own parents had, had been so supportive, and family and other friends and other people at, at schools, even my science teachers in in high school, I feel a, a gratitude. I feel a, um, I owe, sort of owe them something I to give back. And so from the start, I've liked to share what I'm doing with the other people and, and, and young people. And um, so I've done it over the years in, in various ways before made. I've been involved for many years. There's a Sea Grant program at MIT. I'm I'm one of the probably the oldest member of their advisory board, and it's in there now. They're college students, but they have done incredible things over the years. They're really uh, the beginnings of autonomous vehicles. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the company called Bluefin spun out of MIT, and so I've seen at at Sea Grant uh, we do research and we support research on all kinds of things on fisheries, on environmental things, on marine biology, on um, acoustics on economics on many 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 different things and education. They have a huge outreach of education to uh, young people and uh, uh, older uh, college college people. So I've also uh, for years I when I had my little company I'd go give talks. I'd go talk to the Rotary Club and the mm-hmm. and the Kiwanis Club and the Masons and I try to tell the world as doc did he, he if you gave him a, asked him to give a talk he'd get on the plane the next day and go to somewhere and he loved to talk about it. i love to talk about what i do because i'm still very excited about the ocean i feel grateful that i got involved in some of the early days of ocean exploration so i i've sort of had that i also have in in my system uh not only to help young people I mentioned being shocked at seeing segregation. One of my other shocks in my life is when I, in my class at MIT, there were something like eight women. And it, would, it horrified me. I, it was just, and oh, there's so many things I could go on a lot about it. I'm a member of the Explorers Club, which used to mm-hmm. not allow women. I'm, there's this... You know, the world's finally changed. One of the reasons I'm so proud of, of of someone like you and some of the other people I just sat with at the Advisory Council on Underwater Archaeology, more of them are uh, just strong, um, uh, enthusiastic, bright uh, women. I just, I just love it. I just, just sort of kick out of sort of, I feel paternalistic to a, a lot of the people because just watching, they just have a new president, this young lady. She's a professor, uh, Ashley Lemke. And, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, there's, so I, I've, I've been a proponent of including women. And uh, so this thing, this mate thing comes along. Uh, and I, it, I went to MIT. There were ro- various robotic, robotics competitions have been around for a while. There's a lot of ones on land. There've been, uh, uh, there's some real famous ones. One is the first competition mm-hmm. that was started by uh, Dean Kamen in Manchester, New Hampshire, and Woody Flowers at MIT, a famous, uh, he just passed away, unfortunately, mm-hmm. famous professor of mechanical engineering. And, uh, 
So that's actually, it's a huge thing. They have millions of dollars to spend. It's a very different kind of program. But here I find this thing, and it's run by a, just a few amazing women. One of them uh, who, who, who we talk about is this mm-hmm. Jill Zandy. And mm-hmm. Jill fascinates me. She's, uh, she's one of my, you mentioned heroes. She's one of my heroes. She's kind of, She's kind of part kid and, and part adult. She's just uh, enthusiastic about things. She knows everyone's name. She's a mentor to everyone, including me. She uh, uh, has boundless enthusiasm. And she doesn't. she's never had any real resources. She's gotten a little bit of money from uh, National Science Foundation. Uh, nothing made... Uh, uh, the first thing has these big companies who, mm-hmm. who back it up, including Dean Kamen is a very wealthy guy. He founded a company uh, uh, in uh, New Hampshire that did medical, uh, very sophisticated metal equipment. And then he invented the Segway, a whole bunch of stuff. So they're, they're talking millions of dollars. It's just very different. So I meet these people and they just, I just, just fall in love with them. They're just so amazing. And what's amazing is there's all these young people there. And, you know, there's a lot of cliches. The world's going up, going downhill and everything's wrong. And kids these days don't do this and kids that. And, well, here's these kids from all economic uh, strata and all different backgrounds. Some of them come from fancy schools like MIT or they come from fancy prep schools like uh, uh, here in, in Cambridge, there's uh, Cambridge Ringe in Latin. Uh, and, but a lot of them come from inner city schools and, and they, those are the ones I, I love the mm-hmm. most because they don't have any money and they have to be resourceful. They're scrappy. Yeah, oh, that's They're wonderful. scrappy. Because I did it as a kid. I didn't yeah. have any money. I literally would go sidebook. I'd, comb the sidewalks for a scrap of wire or a, or a tennis ball or, <laughs> or whatever. I'd, I'd, uh, and, and so here's these kids who have to be resourceful. They're not given, in some of the programs, the kids are given a kit that's all made up and here's your parts, you, and here's your assignment. Made isn't like that. The assignment is a task. You have a task. They'll, they'll come up with a scenario. You and they'll try to make it real. So they say, you're looking at a ship on the bottom and you have to identify that ship and you have to uh, take some fluid out of it and you have to find out what its cargo is, maybe retrieve some cargo. You have to, you have to do these tasks and it's all sort of imaginary because they'll make, they'll put some um, plastic pipe on the sea on the floor of a pool and say, that's a ship. Well, that's an airplane. And, and everyone accepts that. And the kids have to do stuff. So, so they make these, they wind up making these underwater vehicles, remote operated vehicles. And they're, they're all different. They're wildly different. And uh, some have a lot of money so they can buy the latest fancy thruster. Some of them can't. So they'll go buy a $5 bilge pump at, at, uh, at Home Depot or at uh, uh, whatever I used to, unfortunately, Radio Shack has has disappeared on us. But and uh, they come up with the most amazing things. That, for example, there'll be a task where 
oh, you have to pick something up on the seafloor and, and swing it around or whatever. And some kids will make a very fancy manipulator, an arm with several degrees of freedom and jaws that go in and out. Some of the kids will take a coat hanger mm-hmm. and bend that coat hanger just right. And they'll pick up the thing faster than the person with the fancy arm. So the kids come up with stuff. And there's a lot of side things that happen. The kids uh, get to know each other. And now they come from all over the mm-hmm. world. It's incredibly mm-hmm. exciting. They're it- from everywhere. They're from uh, Australia. They're from Germany. They're from a lot of from the Middle East, from Egypt, from China, from Canada, from the UK, from Mexico. And they all get to know each other. And some of them can't speak English. Some of them barely speak English. They'll come with a translator. And they have to sort themselves into a team. And they, uh, one of the things Jill has tried to do is to get them into the, uh, to learn about business too. You don't just, if you're, if you build stuff, you, you got to go in the commercial world. You have to have a market for it. You have mm-hmm. to satisfy a customer. And Jill's try to teach them about that. So they, they don't just form a team, they form a company and somebody becomes the chief executive officer and somebody becomes the treasurer and somebody uh, becomes the, the, the publicist or whatever. So they have, different uh, thing. And they've got to work together and watching these kids work together. And uh, it's just fascinating. So I've actually, I've sort of, I've been with Mate long enough and I'm kind of an old guy now. I've, I used to be a judge for many years. So I would sit in a room during the competition and judge, do judging of of the kids. And as a result of that, I missed a lot of the Mm -hmm. competition. So I've get, the last couple of years, Jill has given me permission to be the old man, and I just <laughs> I just wander around and and meet the kids and talk with them and encourage them and root for them and share their. There's a lot of heartache because very yeah. often they'll work for a month on this vehicle, they'll try it at home and they'll get to the pool uh, for the big competition and the thing will just go glub 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 glub. Yep. <laughs> Or or the motors won't work, or the TV won't work, and actually, one of the, I also give talks generally at these things. Mm-hmm. Jill asked me to give a talk, and I talk to them about failure. I have failed a lot in my life. I've made a lot of things that don't work. Anyone who's ever designed things makes things that don't work, and failure is good if you learn from it. If you just give up. That's one thing, but there's also a support system at Mate where if you fail, people will cheer you on, maybe guide you to the next year and the next round. And so there's this whole culture of learning and often learning through failure, which which is just I find just wonderful. And and Mate Mate is truly wonderful, and it's a program um, that I I truly love. And for our listeners, you've heard me many many times talk about the value of these very problem-based applied opportunities for kids. And you've also heard me um, interview many people who have been involved in a variety of different robotics-based programs because the kids love them so much. And we, we see that great value. And we've done several episodes that have um, about firsts and, and all of that. So, um, you know, listeners are, are familiar with it. But, but the MATE program, one of the things that I truly, truly love about it, which I think is, well, I guess there, there are two things really 
that sort of set it apart. And it's one of the reasons I, I, I feel so strongly that schools who don't have their own engineering programs in sort of the middle or high school sort of space, that's okay. You can do MATE. MATE is very, very accessible in ways some of the others are not. You know, you you have a teacher who's passionate and willing to learn. There are so many resources available. And the point of entry for MATE is much, much lower than it is for many, many of the other robotics programs that are competition-based. So that's all of that is, is part of what I love about it. But the other thing, and I think this is the thing that truly, truly that I appreciate the most about it, is the fact that it's steeped in a real-world problem that you must solve. So it's a competition, but it's not a game. And that is a very, very different approach than some of the other programs take. And, you know, we um, host one of the MATE regional events. And we took this on, I can't even remember how many years ago now. And ours is still relatively small because, you know, in central Ohio, right, and we, we have folks who come from about a five-state region, you know, we don't really think about underwater science to some extent, right? So it's been a bit of a lift. And so, but we've got very, very dedicated teams who come year after year. And to your point, one of my, and I probably shouldn't say this, but one of my favorite teams, you're not allowed to have a favorite when you, you're sort of oversee one of the regionals, but truth be told is um, there, there's a team from Detroit uh -huh. and we won't name them that way. I don't get myself in too much trouble. But they know who they are. Yeah. Um, and they come to our program uh, to the May uh, regional year after year. And they have one of the one of their their coaches, and I use that term loosely because they're really mentors, these teacher mentors to these these teams, who I think he was one of the early ones um, getting involved in it. And and these kids are back to your point, um, they're scrappy. These are, these are kids that don't come from a wealthy school. Um, they have an old tool shed behind the school, and that's where they work. And these kiddos um, come and, you know, English is not their first language in many cases, and they are absolutely, absolutely dedicated. And you know, there are other teams there, again, with the fancy equipment, and they were able to buy or 3D print their parts, which is great. Don't get me wrong. I love that, too. Um, but these these kids think outside the box in ways, you know, that you just, you just don't seem. And the minute they walk into the natatorium or the or the pool, we hold our event right now at the OSU um, 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 pool, the competition um, deep water diving um, uh, space. And you know those kids, they walk in there with confidence, and every team turns and looks. Oh, that's wonderful! Like here they come. Uh -huh. Right. And there's a legacy at that school of building. And the other thing that's really wonderful that's happened, not just with that team, with many of the others. And so for our teachers that are out there who are contemplating, hey, I'd love to get more of that technology and robotics for my kids, but I don't know how to do it. Mate, mate is a low entry point. And I don't mean to say that because it's lesser. It's not actually. It's actually in many ways harder because it is truly solving real world world problems. And the minute, of course, as you well know, you add water into electric systems, stuff happens. So you have the added advantage of some of those disconnects. But 
But the MATE program is one that I think that it would be fabulous for it to be at many or all schools. It, it, it's absolutely re- remarkable. And, um, you know, I personally want to thank you, Marty, for um, having invested so much time, energy, and effort in seeing that program happen because it's good for kids. And I've, I've watched, and again, I go back to our team in Detroit, the number of kids who participated in that program and stuck with it all through high school who went on to earn engineering scholarships would blow your mind. That's been, I, I keep in touch with a lot of the mate kids. Uh-huh. And that to me has been incredibly gratifying that they not only because a lot of these things you done, you move on to the next thing. A lot of people have from from mate have gone on first to stay with the mate program. They've become judges themselves mm-hmm. and mentors, mm-hmm. but others have gone into uh, to the field, yeah. and not necessarily ocean, but right. but technical field, yeah. all kinds and, of engineering, uh, yeah. And so I keep in touch with some of the kids, and some are like family to me. I just had feel. Won't mind a bit of a diversion. One of my favorite mate kids was a young lady who, when I was a judge, uh, she was this, I hate to use these terms, but this very scrawny little girl with bright red hair and red shoes. She's just, you fall in love with these kids. But she came into the room. She was, she had made a housing. She had machined a housing by herself. I don't know how old, maybe she's 15. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And she was holding it very proudly, and she kind of tiptoed into the room holding this housing. And it's one of my high points in my whole mate life. Well, I've kept in touch with this young lady. She's married now. She has a little boy. She works at NASA, and she's gonna set the you know she's gonna set the world on fire. She actually visited me recently. She has a six month old baby, and she visits she they she and her husband. Uh, came to Boston to visit me and we talked about stuff. But so that's been fun for me to, that, that the kids go on and they're energized and they go on now to mentor other people and, and continue that, uh, that progression. Well, it's a remarkable story. And again, you know, I would encourage uh, teachers, administrators, communities, after school, um, scouts, programs, 4-H clubs. If you are looking for an amazing opportunity, Google Mate will have the resource on our website for you. Uh, it's a it's a fabulous, fabulous program. And um, I want to thank you, Marty, very much, not only for joining us here today, but for all of all of your work over many, many years. We are indebted to you. Well, thank you, Annalise. And since we have an audience here, I'll ask you to Google past also past foundation <laughs> because uh Annalise and what she's accomplished with an amazing group of people is uh just an incredible example in so many ways so check them out too <laughs> thank you marty thank you for joining us for learning unboxed a conversation about teaching learning and the future of work i want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.